Welcome to the Physician Associate Podcast. Hello, welcome to this episode of the Physician Associate Podcast. I'm delighted today to be joined by Ria Agarwal, who is a Physician Associate from Sheffield. Welcome to the show, Ria. Thank you very much, James. I wanted to get you on the podcast because you've just published a really interesting paper on the supervision of physician associates in primary care. Congratulations on your paper. Thank you. I'm really glad that you found it interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Do you want to tell us a little bit about you and your background first before we launch into discussing the research that you've done? Yeah, sure. Um, So I trained at St George's in London back in 2011 and then realised that I quite wanted to work in primary care. I had a really strong primary care placement, really lovely GP supervisor who I think really showed me sort of the wonders of being a PA in primary care and that lovely continuity that we have with patients. And from then, I kind of did a bit of a split role to the Sheffield Hallam University. I now do two days a week there and two and a half days a week in primary care. And now I do some ad hoc work supporting the newly qualified physician associates on the preceptorship scheme. So that was the first piece of research that Julie and I wrote about together last year. Yes, so that was your first publication back in November 2020, which described this innovative preceptorship model. Do you want to explain a little bit about how that all came together and what was involved? So Julie Hoskin, who initially, she had involvement with the physician associates with the first cohort at Sheffield Hallam University. And I suppose she came up with a preceptorship scheme partly to support PAs who are new to qualification and new to working, particularly because, as we all know, general practice is quite a scary place to work and that you have to know a little bit about lots of things, but also partly to entice general practices to take that risk in employing a PA, particularly because, you know, general practices don't have the same amount of money and resources that hospitals do. So financial risks are definitely felt more personally with general practices. And I suppose this preceptorship scheme was kind of a way of sort of marrying both together really trying to support the employer as well as the PA. What happened on the preceptorship year? So in terms of supporting the PA they have access to weekly half-day protected learning time so that typically falls on a Thursday afternoon and that teaching would be kind of anything really that's sort of useful to general practice so I mean I deliver some sessions I did a session yesterday for example but they have other speakers so GPs that come they have people from specialist areas that come and deliver teaching so recently we had a gynecology PA who came and delivered on starting HRT so it's really quite nice I think because I remember back when I started and I was doing five days a week and essentially anything that you don't know you have to spend time learning on your evenings and weekends and for those PAs out there who have got families you know other things going on outside of work I imagine that's going to be quite challenging for them so having that protected half day week I think just gives you a bit more time and a bit of breathing space essentially because it is quite intense when you start your first year In addition to that, they also have access to each other. So they have like a little community. We all have this WhatsApp group. And on the WhatsApp group, that's quite helpful to share general queries. So everyone can answer each other's queries, which is quite nice. And then recently with all the sort of the COVID-19 scenario and vaccination, it's been quite helpful to sort of have conversations around what exactly can a PA do. So again, it's quite helpful just to sort of mull over certain issues that 
are affecting us all in primary care. And then the final thing that they have access to is support from someone else. So Julie Hoskin as preceptorship lead supports them generally, but I also tap in with them and just sort of check in with them every few months to see how they're getting on. But it has been quite interesting for me because it's flagged up PAs who aren't experiencing the support that they perhaps should be. So they're in environments where the GPs perhaps don't quite know how to utilise them. They're either being underutilised or perhaps being asked to do things that are way above the level that they should be working. So that's been hopefully nice for them. They certainly seem to have appreciated just having another PA that's kind of said, no, that doesn't sound quite right. I found that that advice has generally been quite well received by employers and by PAs so far. And how successful has this scheme been? It's grown. Um, So I remember when we first started, I think we only had sort of a handful of PAs really at the time. And I think looking back at the first paper that we released about the background of the preceptorship scheme, it was supposed to be four PAs that Julie secured funding for, but it ended up increasing to eight because I think she ended up you know, having eight PAs that essentially wanted to work in the area. And that has since grown to over at least 20. One of the nice things, though, about the community of practice with the PAs, though, is that it's not actually limited to just general practice PAs. So again, for example, yesterday, we had a PA from the mental health team join. And I suppose that's really nice, because we're all probably thinking about recertification as well in the next few years. So being able to tap into some sort of generalist teaching, hopefully can be quite helpful for people that are working in specialties, as well as just enabling them to feel part of this PA community. Physician associates are still establishing themselves in the workforce slowly. What advice would you give to PAs and employers like GP surgeries who are thinking of taking on a physician associate in terms of helping to make the role successful for them and for everyone? It's a new role and there is a need to support a newly qualified PA and essentially no matter whether or not you've got funding for that to happen as an employer you still have a duty towards that PA to make sure that they're being well looked after but to also support them clinically and I suppose in some ways our preceptorship scheme acts as a little bit of a safety net because it allows us the time to actually touch base with all of these PAs and in certain areas of the country where that isn't able to happen because they just don't have access to that kind of funding. There is probably more emphasis on the employer to then just make sure that that PA is being looked after, that they're supported, they're happy, they feel like they've settled in. Often a lot of the resources that are available for GP trainees can be really helpful for newly qualified PAs in general practice as well. So just kind of sharing those resources around, but really just trying to make sure that the PA is supported because when PAs are supported, they thrive. And sometimes people don't necessarily speak up until there's a problem that's been going on for some time. So I think just trying to have those conversations early. And that was one of the reasons that kind of motivated the release of our second piece of research around supervision. Yes, so your second paper that has just been released, you went on to look at the levels of supervision that PAs new into primary care need as they begin their role and ensure that they feel established and start working to the top of their capability, right? Can you explain to everyone what you did in this research and what you found? 
Yeah, absolutely. So we use the same group in Sheffield of the primary care PAs and we sent them a Google survey that just kind of ascertained what supervision they were actually having and what their thoughts were around that. And I believe a copy of the questionnaire is also available in the actual research paper if anyone wants to have a look at it. But essentially, in terms of what we found is that largely, fortunately, most people did feel well supported by their employers. But there were a couple of PAs that did feel that actually things could have been a bit better. And so we've used all of that information to essentially collate some recommendations. And the recommendations, we've called it like a five-step plan. And those five steps are around sort of ensuring that there is an adequate induction for the PA. And sometimes that induction, you know, certain PAs might need a bit of a longer induction, particularly as well if you've got a network PA who's working amongst several practices, they may need more of an extended induction to actually induct them into each of the practices that they're working in, for example. Otherwise, for other PAs who are reasonably new to practice, one to two weeks or so might be sufficient. That could even be shorter if you've got a PA who's, for example, experienced in hospital and they're moving into general practice practice so they essentially know what it's like to be a PA but they just need to more familiarize themselves with the ethos of the practice so that would be the first step is to essentially look at you know how the PA is inducting them into the practice. Okay so the first step is getting that induction right which for some might be quite quick but for others might need longer especially if they're working across multiple PCN sites really just making sure it's planned and delivered to meet the individual's needs. Okay, so moving on, what was step two? The second step is around kind of day-to-day supervision, and there's kind of a few bullet points in relation to that in the paper. But essentially, regarding day-to-day supervision, it's just basically confirming who the supervisors are going to be, and ideally making sure that those supervisors are actually happy to supervise the PA, because the last thing that you really want is to sign people up to supervise the PA just because they're there on the day, but they actually don't really want to supervise a PA. Particularly if you've got a newly qualified GP, they might be struggling to just sort keep up with their own workload and make the kind of transition to being a GP themselves, let alone taking responsibility for someone else as well. So just ensuring buy-in from the supervisors is really helpful. Okay, and have you made any recommendations as to the type of person who it's appropriate to be a supervisor for those PAs? I know there are grades of GP trainers. Does it have to be somebody like that? No, I mean, a lot of the practices where our PAs are based are generally training practices. And that's generally because they were the first ones to take the PA students on placement. And so they built up some idea of what a PA could look like. And then they were the ones that essentially had buy-in when it came to taking on a new qualified PA. But having said that, I don't work at a training practice and we've taken on preceptorship PAs. They took a chance on me when I first came to Sheffield. You know, I think anyone who really is interested in the PA role and understands what's needed from being a PA supervisor would be appropriate. I think as a training practice, you might have access to resources. For example, if you're doing tutorials with the PA, you might have resources that you've used from having trained GP registrars, which is fantastic. But that's not to say that you shouldn't or couldn't do it if you weren't a training practice. And I think PAs particularly who have been experienced in one practice for a few years, there's nothing stopping them getting involved with sort of co-supervisory roles with a named GP supervisor. And I think actually, at the end of the day, only PA really understands what it's like to 
to be a PA. And I think for myself, sort of working with some of the newly qualified PAs, I've identified issues that hadn't really been sort of thought of in their practices, because there are certain things as a PA that you deal with that no other role necessarily deals with. Okay, so step two is identifying the supervisor. And step three in your paper is about defining when that supervision should take place, right? I'm sure a lot of people of all healthcare professions can recognise that it's often difficult to carve out time in a busy working day to make supervision meetings happen. You know that that time doesn't really happen unless it's protected. So making sure that there's blocks in place for the PA to actually approach the clinical supervisor and kind of setting an idea of how that should happen, when that should happen. Should it be kind of an instant message throughout the clinic, for example, and then a formal debrief at the end? So just kind of, you know, ironing all those issues out. So when the PA does actually start in clinic, it's very clear how they can actually access that support. Yeah, it's really important for the newly qualified PA in primary care to know how they can access support from their supervisor. That makes a lot of sense. And then your fourth point is talking about how that day-to-day supervision changes over time. And linked to that is your fifth step as well about having regular meetings and check-ins that aren't about the clinical stuff, but more the pastoral looking after the PA and hoping that they're settling in okay. The idea being with the day-to-day supervision is it needs to be dependent on the PA's abilities, but it also should reduce theoretically as their experience builds. So one of the frustrating things is, you know, having someone who's holding your hand too much, but similarly not holding your hand enough. It's about achieving that balance. And so the final recommendation is around this formal supervisory meetings, which in addition to checking those pastoral elements and making sure that the PA is achieving what they should be and getting on okay, it's also making sure that the level of supervision feels appropriate for the PA and kind of making any adjustments as needed. And we're hoping that all of this kind of supplements existing documentation from the faculty of PA. I know that on their website, they've got quite a lot of, you know, guidance and a job description and things like that for newly qualified PAs in general practice. But it's really just so that employers and supervisors in particular have got something that they could potentially work from. And we're hopeful that these recommendations, although it's particularly geared towards newly qualified PAs working in general practice, but it doesn't have to be limited to that. It could potentially be to someone who's worked in another specialty and then moving into general practice. You know, some of these things will apply. Similarly, some of this will possibly apply to someone who's working in a hospital role as well in terms of ensuring that there is day-to-day supervision as well as periodic supervisory, kind of a more formal thing. So we're hoping really that it can just shape supervision more generally. One of the messages that came out for me when I was reading your paper was that the levels of supervision that a PA needs changes quite rapidly. A newly qualified PA, their first job in primary care Supervisors should probably be expecting to debrief almost every patient with them for the first few weeks and months. But then that, as the PA's confidence and experience grows, that element of supervision can lessen to a debrief after the session, a debrief when needed. And if the supervisors and the employers give the PAs that initial investment in their supervision front up, they reap the rewards later down the line when the PA stays with them and is confident and competent and working quite autonomously and independently. 
Yeah, I totally agree. And I think a lot of that pace does depend on the PA that you have. So although we're all trained to the same curriculum, you know, some PAs, depending on their background, might feel happier to work at a a faster pace than other PAs who maybe lack the clinical experience of their peers. So there's so many different variables, isn't there? Even regionally, you know, if if you know what a PA does because you've heard from the practice next door that this is how a PA works, you probably have a stronger idea than in a region who are completely new to PAs. But hopefully, as the number of PAs increases, all of this can only get easier. And hopefully, we can all move forwards together with some better understanding of essentially how to support newly qualified PAs in primary care. It's remembering at the end of the day, it's patient safety that's most important. And the levels of supervision have to be there for any newly qualified healthcare professional in the beginnings of their career. It's a case of being aware of what you're signing up for as well when you take on a PA. If you've got a gap, you know, in your clinical workforce, you might think, oh, I'll give it a go and see what happens. But actually, as you've said, you know, it is quite time intensive initially. You do need to support the PA because of patient safety and also just to make sure that the PA is comfortable and feels supported as they're working. For any physician associates, PA students that are listening to this at the moment and are considering going into primary care, when they're going for their job interviews at their practices, what would you say would be the green flags, the sort of signs that this is going to be a good place for me to work, I'm going to get supported properly? And what sort of questions should they be asking in their interviews to make sure that they're going to be happy? That's a really good question. I think in terms of When you're going for an interview, I think it's really important to remember that they're interviewing you, but you you should also be interviewing them. So I think it can be a little bit of a yellow flag sometimes to go to a practice that's looking for an advanced nurse practitioner slash PA slash another role. And that's sometimes if they put that in their application process, it sometimes might indicate that they don't necessarily understand how a PA might differ from some of those other roles and perhaps what they're actually looking for. So I think it's helpful at the interview to just sort of check what they're actually expecting a PA to do and just sort of making sure that everyone's clear on that before you then, you know, look at accepting a role with them. I think particularly if you're new to general practice, looking at how they're going to support you. So what do they know about kind of supporting a newly qualified PA? Is there any sort of teaching locally that you'd be able to tap into? Would you be given any kind of study leave in order to keep up those 50 hours of CPD that we also need to do? So kind of just thinking generally around, you know, how invested the practice is in supporting you. Some PAs locally are getting kind of study budgets. Um, For example, at my practice, they normally fund around one conference a year for me to attend, which has been really helpful. So that's included things like the GP update course. And that's been really nice because, you know, I, I feel supported and it feels like they're looking after me. So that's one of the reasons why I've stayed on at my current practice for nearly six years now. Thanks, Ria. I think that's really good advice for both the PAs and the potential employers too to consider. So what are you guys working on next? Have you got more research coming up into Physician Associates? the moment um, Julie and I are just working on what we've called our final piece of the trilogy of research that we're doing so the first piece was mainly around sort of the preceptorship scheme itself and the second piece is around clinical supervision 
The final piece is going to be around how PAs have transitioned to working during COVID-19, particularly the issues sort of faced during the move to remote consultations, because I suppose over the last year, I've kind of got my head around it and gotten used to it and general practice has changed and it'll be interesting to see the direction that it takes over the next few years as we aim to come out of the pandemic and hopefully move forwards. But it could be that remote consultation stays or certain things are dealt with over the phone more frequently than they perhaps were previously. So that's something that I'm looking into at the moment and hoping to get something out there over the next few months. If anybody's listened to this and found themselves really interested in research into PAs, What advice would you give people who want to go out and do their own projects? I'm not the best person to ask this question to purely because I don't actually have a strong research background. So as a PA, and even actually prior to my PA career, I've never actually considered myself as an academic person. I've always been quite people skills person. So it's only really since lockdown happened that I thought, oh, I've got a bit of time on my hands. Maybe, you know, we should actually write about some of the stuff that we're doing. Julie and I have gone about writing all of this stuff, which has then led to these two research papers being published. And through kind of the process of writing something, submitting it for peer review, and actually I have to take this opportunity to thank the people that put their time into peer reviewing our research, because the pieces that you see now, particularly with our first paper, you know, that was the first paper I've ever written for research. So that paper looked quite different before it went for peer review compared to how it came out after. But yeah, in answer to your question, I'd just say, you know, look for opportunities, do try and share good practice. You know, if you're achieving something locally, tell everyone. And I know the Faculty Physician Associates are really keen to hear about what's going on in different regions. It's really exciting that they're looking to have a research page on their website to kind of of share all this information because it's so easy to get lost particularly on Twitter with what's going on in different places and it'd be really nice to just have all these resources in one place but I think you know moving forwards into research the National Institute of Health Research do recognise that PAs can have contributions to make here and I know that they have recently released something to say that they do recognise the value that PAs can bring and would welcome PAs to kind of apply for their research grants so absolutely if research is something that you're looking into that might be of something of interest. Ria thanks so much for joining us on the show today and I'll leave a link to your papers in the show notes so people can find what you written about below thank you very much james thanks for having me no problem and i hope when your next piece of research is out that you'll come back and let us know about the findings that you discover then that's all for this episode though thanks again ria and thanks to you for listening to this podcast i'd be really keen to hear from other pas out there if you have any thoughts or exciting projects like the preceptorship year that ria spoke about going on in your neck of the woods or if you're working on research or just doing something really interesting and innovative as a PA that you think it would be good to share with others, please get in touch with me via social media on Facebook and Twitter. We're at PA Podcast UK. Thanks for listening. And I hope you'll join me next week for the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Precision Associate Podcast.